Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Mike Tomalaris is the voice of sport for SBS and the annual host of the world's biggest cycling race, the Tour de France. On the record, this episode discovers his love of cycling, his frosty relationship with drug cheat Lance Armstrong and his proudest moment as Cadell Evans won in Paris. Cadell Evans, the first Australian to win the Tour de France and he has done it on an American team and they're all over him. It's going to be a big night in Australia tonight. They're all up watching the first ever Australian to win the Tour de France. Well, COVID, the pandemic, of course, has disrupted many parts of our life in 2020, not the least, of course, major sporting events. I mean, if you think about it, the AFL Grand Final, the Australian Formula One race in Melbourne was cancelled on the day it was supposed to start, all of this year's spring racing carnival. Now, if you'd told me back in January that I'd be spending Melbourne Cup Day in a park in South Melbourne under an umbrella watching the great race on my mobile phone, I would have laughed at you. That's exactly what I did. COVID globally has had a massive impact on world sport, not at least, of course, We saw the Tokyo Olympic Games cancelled very sadly. Hopefully, they'll be back next year. And one of my favourite annual sporting contests, the Tour de France, it ran, but without the normal roadside crowds and without the normal commentary teams. Now, I did a nighttime radio show nationally between 2012 and the middle of last year. And one big advantage of those hours, and let me tell you, there wasn't many, was the opportunity to go home from work, grab a beer out of the fridge, once a year and settle down and watch the outstanding SBS television coverage of the world's most famous bike race, the Tour de France. And I was lucky enough, I think, for all of those years to be able to chat regularly to the SBS face of that race, Mike Tomolaris, and he's our guest on this edition of On The Record. Michael, great to talk to you again. Welcome. Oh, thanks very much, Steve. Uh, You have been a great supporter of the Tour de France, and I think it's... uh partly because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, you're a bit of a Francophile. You have been to France many times. Uh, you love uh, the food from what you've told me over the years, the wine, the scenery. It's got so much to offer. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And, of course, it is the host to uh, the world's biggest annual sporting event, which is the Tour. One of the reasons I love France is because uh, I always describe SBS's coverage of the Tour of, of not just outstanding sporting content, but it's like a travel log. I mean, for years we had, of course, Gabrielle Gattay uh, talking about food, uh, and this year it, it changed, but everything changes. But I, I, I fell in love with France through that the coverage of that race, I must say. Well, Steve, that concept uh, that uh, has evolved over the years was certainly premeditated. I mean, uh, when you think about it, uh, the sport of cycling can be quite, uh, quite complex to those uh, who are watching for the very first time. I mean, there's a peloton, there's a, a big group of riders, and the people often ask me, what are they doing in there? When do, why do they attack when they do? Uh, why are riders spat out the back? You know, there's all these uh, complexities to what a sport that, that, that can be quite um, difficult to understand. But when the penny drops, it is a beautiful sport to watch and follow. But uh, what we've made it, um, uh, the, the package on our coverage the tour, to what it is today uh, for good reason. We try to embrace a wider market. I mean, the tour, as you say, uh, accounts for a lot of things. It, it accounts for sport first and foremost, but it is also a tourist event as well. There are very few sports that take you from one part of the country to another. I mean, most sports are held in 
football stadiums or on basketball courts or on, on golf greens. Um, uh, the tour is totally different. It uh, takes you on, a, on an escape, I guess. Um, and apart from uh, the tourism aspect, you've got the cuisine, like you say. You've got the history, the chateaus and the buildings and structures that date back centuries. The aerial vision that the French television coverage provides for us, uh, SBS as uh, the rights holder for Australia, well, it uh, captures a wide audience. And, and that's the reason why the tour has become successful over the last 30 years. We first started showing the tour back in 1991 in, um, in a daily highlights form, and it was purely and simply a sporting event. But we've turned it into, I guess, a cultural journey, and that's what it is for three weeks every year on SBS. Tell me, Michael, how hard did you take it, the news when it came that you wouldn't be going this year because of this awful virus? Well, to be honest with you, Steve, it really didn't bother me. I mean, I've been to France on 24 previous occasions. This would have been the 25th year. And look, I love the country and I do most of the driving for my crew when I'm over there. I know uh, every highway and byway, most of the, uh, <laughs> all of the big cities, most of the small towns and one or two of the uh, hamlets and villages that, uh, that, that the, uh, the, the French countryside. Look, it really didn't bother me. Um, it's a hard slog, let me tell you. The days are long. Apart from making television and sitting in a production truck for about uh, 10 hours every day, uh, the rest of the 24 hours are spent uh, looking for hotels, uh, driving up to 7,000 kilometres in uh, the vehicle that's provided for us uh, over the uh, four weeks that we're in France. So to, uh, to wrap up at 2 o'clock in the morning, as was the case this year, and uh, now that I've got a bed to, uh, to uh, sleep in <laughs> just five minutes away, was a huge, huge difference and uh, quite welcoming. One of my big fears, though, and I, I take it that you, you didn't mind having a year off, but one of my big fears with all this remote coverage, Mike, in, of sport in 2020 is the people holding the purse strings might say, hey, why do we need to send all these people to do all this stuff when we can do it all from a studio? Well, that's a very good question and uh, one that's quite valid. But I believe compared to many other sporting events, Steve, uh, uh, the tour is different uh, for the reasons I said before. And I think uh, by being over there, um, it really does, uh, we can translate uh, what the tour is all about. And it's about, it's about atmosphere. It's about energy. It's, uh, it's about uh, translating uh, French culture to Australia. Um, and it's very hard to do that when you're focusing on a sport specifically. Uh, but the, the tour is not a sport specifically. It is so much more for the reasons I said before. Um, look, if we can't get over there as a crew, and we've done that for the best part of 25 years, as long as I've been doing it, well, then uh, I believe it's very important that we do send a camera crew over there and a reporter. And if the case arises that we have to do it from your, our Australia base uh, in 2021, so be it. But I think it's very important that we do speak to the writers involved and uh, get across um, the the cultural aspect of the Tour de France. Oh, your coverage from the studio was still outstanding. I mean, no doubt about that. But I think not being in the middle of it, smelling the sweat, feeling yeah. the passion and, and, and the smells of just, you know, the mountains must have made it a bit more difficult to be as uh, as passionate and as uh, as keen as you always are. It must have just been a little bit harder. Yeah, look, it was, uh, Steve. But look, covid um, sort of made me feel I'm glad I'm here in Australia rather than over there. Well, I mean, the, 
the pandemic has uh, taken France has, has has been hit probably worse than any other European country apart from maybe the UK. I mean, uh, the second wave is uh, is still there as I speak to you now. Uh, there are people still dying. There are uh, many many cases. Uh, people being infected. Look. Uh, and for that reason alone, I, I was really happy, and so was our crew, that we weren't there. There's nothing worse than uh, being in a country when there's a pandemic on. Um, I felt pretty safe being in Australia, we'll in come, Sydney anyway. We'll come back to the tour and its special place in your life uh, in a little while, but I, I did some background checks on you today. You won't be surprised. Now, I read that as a young boy, you, even at the age of around seven or eight, wanted to get into radio. How come? Look, Steve, I uh, fell in love with the media from a very young age. I can remember sharing a bedroom with my younger brother and sister in uh, in Carlton, not Carlton, Victoria, but Carlton in New South Wales, the Sydney suburb in the St. George area. And I can remember waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning and listening to uh, um, broadcasters like the late, great Dario Callahan um, from the 70s um, and, and many others. And I would put the radio transistor on my uh, ear, uh, turn the volume down very, very low so as I don't wake my brother and sister and just listen and observe. And uh, I, I said to myself from a very young age, look, look, I want to be like, uh, I want to be like Gary O'Callaghan or, or, or people of that ilk. Uh, I want to be in radio. I want to be a broadcaster. Perhaps back then I, I wanted to be a DJ and spin some records. I don't know. But I knew from a very young age I wanted to be in, in, in the media. So um, that grabbed me. And I, could, and I sincerely do remember waking up. But it was still dark outside. It might, it might have been the middle of winter. Put the radio on my ear and just listen, observe. And that's how I fell in love with media. It's funny you say that because I can remember quite clearly. I must have been in about um, year, the third year of high school. And back in those days, so I'm talking about um, the late 60s, um, they used to broadcast big boxing matches on radio and Muhammad Ali was at the peak of his powers. Yep. We, me and a couple of mates with a transistor radio snuck off from school to a paddock just up the road, found ourselves an old olive tree to sit under, hang the radio off a branch of the olive tree and listen to, I think, I might be romanticising this a little bit, but I reckon it was the rumble in the jungle fight and, and it was broadcast live on Australian radio. I remember that too, Steve, really clearly. And I was in high school. And at lunchtime, uh, we would uh, duck out. I mean, uh, the broadcast of those boxing matches with Muhammad Ali, uh, given the time difference, was uh, held around lunchtime or yeah. maybe or maybe recess our time. So yeah, I'm not dreaming remember. it, am I? No, you're not dreaming it at all. I remember the thriller in Manila. And I can remember the rumble in the jungle. And we were, as uh, as year eight or year nine or when, what was it then, uh, Form three or form four, intermediate uh, would, or something. Well, that's right. And we would we, we, we fell in love with Muhammad Ali. He was our hero, and uh, we would do anything to uh, just uh, um, um, uh, gather around a, a small transistor radio and listen to that broadcast. By all means, mate, you are not dreaming. I am. I'm, I'm a, perhaps a little bit younger than you, but but uh, obviously of the, of the same interest. Was your passion always sport broadcasting, or was it radio in general? It was radio in general, Stephen. That's why I admire uh, uh, people like yourself and uh, many others who have, have made the transition from uh, from uh, sport to news. And there are many. I mean, uh, Ray Hadley is one that comes to mind. Jim Wilson now on uh, Sydney Radio in the afternoon. There are many who have made the transition from sport to uh, 
bits of news and current affairs. But look, sport, as I get older, I have less uh, passion, I, I suspect, uh, uh, for sport and have more interest and love uh, for news. I guess I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a news junkie. I'm approaching 60. In fact, I'll be 60 in about uh, two or three weeks' time. So um, perhaps the passion for sport has waned a little bit. It's not that I don't have an interest in sport. I mean, I watch the, uh, the State of Origin, the Rugby League series between New South Wales and Queensland each and every year. Um, for example, I grew up on Rugby League, uh, living in the St. George area in Sydney. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've seen it all, really. I've, I've been to, the, to Olympic Games. I've uh, been to World Cup football tournaments back in the 1990s. I've seen Cadell Evans uh, walk on the, uh, or step on the highest step at uh, the Tour de France. So uh, I've sort of been there, done that. And, um, you know, even though the love for sport is still there, it doesn't really um, thrill me as much as perhaps it did when I was a lot younger. News, on the other hand, uh, for example, certainly does. I mean, uh, the U.S. elections has been absolutely fascinating. Whether you love Trump or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, the scenario and what's unfolding over in the U.S. Uh, with the election in 2020 is just unbelievable, something I've never seen before. Yeah, one of the highlights of my broadcasting career was the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated as the American president. I was lucky enough to be in Harlem in New York watching it on a big screen with a, a largely African-American population and when Aretha wow. Franklin came on to sing, uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, I tell you what. We've been very lucky in our careers to have been at some extraordinary events. Let me uh, ask about your, your, your interest in the round ball game. Why were you interested in, uh, as we call it, soccer or, or football, as the world calls it? Well, look, uh, Steve, I started my sporting career in television uh, covering uh, soccer, football, I mean, I started uh, playing the game at the age of six and continued playing uh, on a social level, on a recreational level, I should say, uh, up to the age of 42 before I jumped, started to jump on a bike and, uh, and cycle, and I still do to this day. Soccer, I think through my father, was uh, my first love. I mean, my father is of uh, Greek heritage but was born in Romania. He's a Romanian Greek, and so was my mother. They came to Australia back in 1950, and I can remember the date, not me personally, but my father telling me it was in March in 1950. They uh, arrived on the ship, went through the, uh, um, uh, underneath the harbour bridge in Sydney. And uh, my father doesn't have photos or pictures of it, but he tells me uh, passionately he fell in love with uh, the country there and then. So that's 70 years ago. Both my parents are still alive. So I think it was my father taking me to uh, soccer matches. Uh, he had a love for um, Pan Hellenic, uh, a team in the New South Wales um, Soccer Federation back in the 60s and 70s when I was a little tyke. And I think my love for the game just grew from then, as, as most uh, kids of European background uh, perhaps, uh, you know, experience the same sort of thing. Uh, and I played the game, fell in love with the game, went to the World Cup in 1994 in the United States, and then again in 1998 uh, in France. In 96, I went to the Euro Championships in England, and uh, it sort of snowballed from there. And then when uh, Les Murray, or the boss at the time, said to me, look, Tomo, we've got this uh, event called the Tour de France. It's starting from the Netherlands. We want you to go over there. Uh, we want you to top and tail our daily highlights program. We want you to talk to the Australians that are starting to uh, filter in uh, to this uh, great race. Uh, um, at first, I thought, uh, Steve, I didn't really want to go because I was entrenched uh, in, in, in the world of football, soccer. 
And I was in England at the time covering the European Championships. It was a career-changing and uh, defining moment for me because I, I did accept uh, the challenge to go over to the Netherlands when the tour started on the Grand Depart that particular year. And uh, the rest is history. I'm still covering the tour 25 years on. I still have a love for the world game, but uh, I don't uh, cover it as much as I used to way back then. You mentioned suburban Sydney soccer and Melbourne was strong as well. We've sort of lost that uh, really big ethnic interest in uh, suburban soccer. It was massive in the 60s and 70s, Mike, wasn't it, with uh, the Greeks and the Italians following their teams and the, the Baltic states. It was huge. Well, that was the era that uh, we were living in. I mean, the uh, new Australians that had come in after the World War II or after World War II, they wanted to follow the game that they passionately were in love with back at their homeland. And so teams in Sydney, like Panhellenic and St. George Budapest, you had Ugal Prague. And in Victoria, you had teams like uh, Heidelberg Alexander and Brunswick Juventus and uh, South Melbourne Hellas and you know, and uh, there's also uh, the Yugoslav team at the time. Um, look, uh, they just wanted to fall in love with the team and involve and start a competition that they grew up with uh, back in their homeland. And look, uh, that generation, I guess, of uh, new Australians have, uh, I guess, moved on. Uh, they've uh, they've died off uh, in many cases, I guess. Although my parents are still alive and they're quite elderly. Um, it's changed. It's, it was a different era. And these days, uh, the second generation and third generation of Australians, like myself, we still have a love for the game. But these days, it's a lot more tribal in that uh, we follow our respective cities or our regions, not so much uh, where we come from ethnically. Yeah, I think uh, media's probably changed it. You can so easily access any of the leagues in the world, whether they be the Bundesliga or the EPL. Back then, uh, you... We saw suburban Australian football broadcast on television, I think on the ABC on a, on a regular Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and you couldn't actually get – I mean, they used to have English soccer from memory very late at night, maybe on a, maybe on a Monday night in Australia, yes. and you used to be and able to sit it? up and watch it. Steve, I can remember uh, it was the big match or match that's of it. the day. It was, that's the one. And um, the games that we saw on the ABC – uh, were screened a week after the match was held. The reason being, the tapes <laughs> weren't flown out to Australia. They were put on a ship or something else or something of oh, that ilk. Uh, so I can remember sitting down with my father, watching the big match and that distinctive uh, musical theme. Yes. Uh, I just loved it. And uh, I fell in love with English football a long time ago. So talking about football, uh, and we'll get back to the, the cycling shortly, tell me about two of your great mentors in Johnny Warren and Les Murray. Uh, look, uh, what can you say? I can remember as a kid uh, at Herstal Public School in Sydney, um, Johnny Warren, as a 21-year-old, came to our school. I guess uh, he was the Harry Kuehl. Oh, wasn't, uh, wasn't he a good-looking bloke? <laughs> He was a good-looking rooster, and as a 21-year-old, he was the pin-up boy of, of his time. And me, a six- or seven-year-old, was introduced to Johnny Warren, along with uh, other kids from our, our, our uh, grade, school grade. And at the time, uh, I thought, wow, this, this guy's pretty cool. He's, uh, he looks pretty good. He plays uh, soccer. He knows how to juggle a, a football. So uh, I might, uh, I might uh, just get involved and uh, follow him. And, and to, think, uh, to think that uh, I, uh, a few years later, I would be a ball boy at 
St George Budapest home game at Hurstville Oval. Well, that thrilled me. I would have been about 11 or 12 years of age, Steve. And then later on in my career, I got the opportunity to work with uh, with Johnny Warren. So uh, it was a, a 360-degree uh, turnaround in my life. Uh, and when Johnny passed away back in 2004 from cancer, very, very sad. Captain Soccer, he did so much uh, for the game. He brought uh, the ethnics and uh, the new Australians of the 60s together with... Um, with uh, the likes of, of Johnny, an Anglo-Saxon Aussie, and uh, he brought us together. He, he united Australians who loved uh, the world game. As for Les Murray, well, he gave me the break a long time ago that started my career at uh, SBS. Uh, uh, I remember he, he called me up one day and said to me, look, we've got this game over at uh, Marconi Stadium, Marconi versus Sydney, Croatia. We want you to... Uh, we want you to call the match. And I said, Les, I know a little bit about soccer, but uh, I don't really know the players that well. He said, don't worry about it. We'll work around you. We'll work around you. All we want is about three or four minutes, and uh, we'll piece it together. The tapes came back. Uh, Les was happy, and uh, a lovely uh, career started for me. Uh, he liked what I did. He liked the sound of my voice. Uh, liked the passion in my voice and the fact that I did know more than I, I let on regarding uh, knowing and understanding the game. And... Um, well, here I am some uh, 30 years later. I'm still at SBS. How important has Les Murray been for Australian soccer? Oh, very important. Uh, look, uh, he uh, he uh, brought the passion uh, to uh, to an, an, an audience um, at a time when uh, a lot of viewers, television viewers in Australia, uh, were attuned to sports like AFL and uh, rugby league and maybe cricket. Um, and when a majority of the Australian population that watches television sport uh, started tuning into soccer, the world game, I guess at first they didn't really understand what the fuss was all about. But through uh, subscription TV these days, Steve, I think we all understand how big the game is and not forgetting the FIFA World Cup every four years. It's a global event. It's bigger than the Olympics. It's bigger than any uh, American uh, election, if you like. It's, It's massive. So um, given that there are so many leagues around the world, it's the number one sport in perhaps 99% of the countries on this planet, uh, I think we all understand uh, how big the game is. And Les, well, he was, uh, he was the Jesus Christ of, of uh, the world game. And uh, we were his disciples. And uh, he, he taught us what, how important and how big the game is globally. There's no doubt about that, and without the Les Murrays and Johnny Warrens, we would not have followed it as closely. I still think one of the greatest renditions of the national anthem that I've ever uh, been involved in, heard, sung, was at the then Telstra Stadium, the old Olympic Stadium in Sydney, just before that World Cup qualifier in 2005 against Uruguay. It was spine-tingling. Steve, uh, the whole game, the whole experience uh, was spine-tingling. What a night that was, eh? Well, it was very special for me, and I'll tell you why. Immediately after we learned that we qualified after that penalty shootout when John Aloisi scored the winning goal and uh, ran the length of the field with his uh, shirt off (laughs) and all the players uh, swarming around him, well, I got the opportunity to actually uh, um, introduce the players in the middle of the uh, stadium there on the field, one by one. I had no notes. I knew the players, uh, or most of them, um, by face, and uh, my job was to basically introduce them one by one to the 83,000 that were at the stadium and uh, the many, many millions watching uh, across Australia and perhaps uh, 
across the world because, because Australia on that night had qualified for the World Cup, the biggest tournament in the world for the first time in 32 years. And there I was, uh, Mark Viduka, Harry Kuehl, John Aloisi, uh, Mark Presciano. The list went on and on and on. I can remember, uh, I had a pretty uh, good relationship with uh, Mark Viduka because I had followed his career from a very young age when he was at the AIS in Canberra. I've known him since uh, he was 17 years of age. And I said to him, there was about one or two players left that I wasn't really sure on who they were. Uh, They were bench players, fringe players, and they didn't really get a run. And so I said to Dukes, I said, Mark, I know most of these guys. I I know most of you, but there's two players left. Tell me who they are because I don't know who they are. And he, uh, he filled me in, and I got to introduce them to the crowd, the 83,000 at the stadium. So uh, it was a spine-tingling moment, as you say, uh, Steve, and, and one that I'll never forget for many reasons. Well, everybody remembers the Aloisi penalty, obviously, that put us into the World Cup, but we, we should never forget the efforts of Mark Schwartz that night because the penalty he saved oh. made that possible. Absolutely. Mark Schwartz, there's another legend. That was a golden era of Australian soccer, uh, Steve, and uh, the guys went on uh, to qualify for the World Cup in Germany the following year. And they reached uh, the first round, only to be uh, wiped out by uh, Italy in controversial circumstances. But those three matches, the uh, preliminary games, the uh, group matches that they played in against uh, Croatia, Brazil and Japan, well, uh, that just sent tingles right across uh, everybody. Uh, Whether you watch sport or not, it uh, it was a national event to watch the Socceroos perform and um, will perform quite successfully up until that moment when they got knocked out by the Italians. The other interesting thing that happened that night, Qantas was a major sponsor of the Socceroos forever, as you know, and John Travolta was a guest of the chairwoman of of, uh, of Qantas, Margaret Jackson, that night. She took him down into the change rooms after the game, and there they were singing the Australian National Anthem with John Travolta. Well, I hope they had their kid on because uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> it right. wouldn't have gone down too well. Uh, tell me, why cycling? How did you then pivot into cycling? Well, um, to tell you the truth, um, we used to cover this event uh, held down the east coast of Australia called the Commonwealth Bank Cycle Classic. It was a multi-day event, uh, Steve. And at the time, SBS uh, had the rights to this event. It, I guess it was a precursor to the Tour Down Under, the event which is held in South Australia uh, every year and has done so since uh, 1999. Now, back in the early 90s, uh, SBS had the rights. Uh, and one day, uh, Les or somebody came out of the office and said, look, we've got this event. Anybody want to go and cover it? I looked around the room. Nobody put their hand up. I didn't really have that much of an interest, to be honest with you. But I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to get out of the office and maybe follow a sport that I'm not too familiar with. But there might be some uh, some backstory, some human interest stories that I could I could cover in a, for our for our news service and our sports service as well. So I did it more for the opportunity to get out of the office and visit places like uh, Byron Bay, Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie. It was an event that was held uh, down the east coast of Australia from um, Byron Bay to um, to Canberra via Sydney. Tough so ride. Eight days, eight days on the road. Tough ride. But in the days when, um, um, you know, there weren't so many protocols in place like there is these days. And the event, uh, after about uh, 10 or 11 years, had to, uh, had to finish because of uh, police and uh, insurance and, uh, and uh, 
what, what have you. It was quite unfortunate, but New South Wales at the time didn't really support uh, multi-day cycling races like this. And it was a terrific race because it did uh, introduce us to uh, many European names, riders who were household names at the time. Jan Ulrich, for example, who went on to win the Tour de France, uh, is one rider that comes to mind. But look, uh, in terms of your question, I did it to try and get out of the office, uh, make some stories. And uh, look, I didn't really understand the sport that well, Steve, uh, for the reasons I said before. It can be quite a difficult sport to understand when you're watching it for the very first time. But there are many interesting backstories to be told when covering a bike race, uh, a multi-day bike race like this. I mean, uh, the fact that they've got to cover up to 160 or more kilometres every day. Um, They have to get massages on a table at the hotel room every day. They have big breakfasts. They sleep for up to 10 hours every day. And uh, they race hard for about six or seven hours every day. And uh, the fact that it's held outdoors, scenery and uh, cycling, world cycling and road cycling has got a lot more to offer, I believe, than many, many other sports. And that was, that's what attracted me to, uh, to the sport. And uh, it evolved. Uh, I loved it. I fell in love with it. And then uh, the Tour de France came around and, uh, well, the rest is history. There's a, a number of grand tours, obviously Italy, Spain, uh, to name a couple just. Why is the Tour de France so much bigger than the others, than, than the Giro? Or, or, or in Europe, are they all of equal stature? Not necessarily. The Tour de France is the big daddy. It's the, uh, the grand final, if you like, of, of cycling. And the reason being, Steve, is that the French have marketed their race so brilliantly well in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, it's an event that dates back to 1903, but what makes it so special these days is television. I mean, they have marketed their event to a television audience, not just in France or in Europe, but the globe, the world. I mean, that's why we watch it here in Australia. That's why riders from North America have been attracted to competing at the Tour de France, and uh, the, the viewing audience from North America makes a beeline over to France every year for a, for an annual holiday, but to take in that holiday, uh, they've got to watch uh, one or two segments or stages of the Tour de France. It is the biggest annual sporting event, and the reason why the French do it so well is because, as I say, they've turned it into a television spectacle. Sure, the other events, like the Tour of Italy, the Giro d'Italia, or the Tour of Spain, the Vuelta, which are the other two grand tours, uh, provide spectacular television, but I don't believe they market their race as well as uh, the Tour de France has. When we were given the rights at SBS to uh, the daily highlights packages, we were basically given those rights free, Steve, on a platter next to nothing. This is back in 1992. These days, SBS is paying uh, an arm and a leg to uh, retain those uh, broadcast rights. So it was clever marketing from uh, a long, long time ago. They gave us something for virtually nothing 30 years ago, but that's not the case these days. So very clever marketing from the French. They've done a great job, and that's why the Tour de France these days is the spectacle that it is, and it's and, and it's uh, an event that, uh, that so many people around the world have fallen in love with. And it's probably the only event that they watch. Mike Tomalaris is our special guest on the record. A couple of the lead-up events fascinate me, and I'm sure you've been there and Australians have been successful, that race, Paris-Roubaix, over yeah. cobblestones, have you walked on those cobblestones? And how hard must it be, and you're a bike rider, to ride a bike on them? Uh, 
uh, look, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't race over it, that's for sure. I'm not a racer. I just basically ride my bike uh, at a recreational level with some mates. Uh, and uh, look, those cobblestone roads, they were built in the uh, the Napoleonic uh, era, Steve. I mean, I'm talking the early 1800s. They're farm roads now. But back then, they were major roads. But they're, they're, they still exist. And they're used for races like Paris-Roubaix. And Paris-Roubaix being Paris to Roubaix. It's a total distance of around 260 kilometres. There are something like uh, 16 or 17 cobbled segments, which can run for up to uh, two or three kilometres. These cobbled uh, surfaces are very, very deep. They're very hard, Stephen, if you fall on them or crash on them, or if there's a pile-up and uh, you end up on these cobbles and uh, you're marked virtually for the rest of your career, that's for sure. It's a scar that'll live with you for a long, long time. It is a spectacle of the highest order as far as I'm concerned. I've seen a lot of sports in my time. But for me, the one-day event, Paris-Roubaix, is, is one that is a, a television spectacle because these guys, they're warriors. They're racing up to 50, 60, 70 kilometers per hour on these hard roads. And uh, they're fearless. They don't care if they come down. I'm, well, I'm sure they do care, but uh, they don't think about it at the time. For them... It's to uh, make it to the velodrome, the ancient velodrome in the uh, village of uh, Roubaix near the Belgian border and lift that very unique trophy. It's a cobble on a stand. And um, I'm told it's very, very heavy <laughs> as well. It's the, one of the most unique uh, trophies you'll ever see in world sport. And that's why I love it. I think uh, it's, it's a terrific spectacle, television spectacle. And I'd love to see more people just... Uh, just get a taste of it by, 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 by watching it. We do get a good uh, audience when it's on. Unfortunately, it wasn't on this year because of COVID, but uh, it's growing. It's growing uh, because it's so unique. Some famous Australian victories on, on that road. Oh, yeah. Stuart O'Grady was the first one back in uh, 2007. And in more recent times, 2013, or, no, 2016 it was, uh, Matthew Heyman, uh, the boy from Canberra. So two Aussies for a race that goes way back to 1896. So it's very much a part of uh, French sporting culture is uh, cycling and Paris-Roubaix. Let's talk about Lance Armstrong. You watched him win many tours. Did you ever suspect he was cheating? Oh, yeah. I suspected. We all suspected, Steve. Uh, We knew there was something going on. But the thing is, I often get criticised from uh, a small sector of – the hardcore cycling fans that are out there uh, of not doing enough to perhaps expose uh, the likes of Lance Armstrong. But you've got to remember, uh, we don't go over there as hard-nosed journalists. We go over there to cover a sporting spectacle. Um, we just don't have the resources to uh, to do all the, the back work and trying to uncover uh, potential drug uh, doping riders. So... Look, we had our suspicions, uh, but I couldn't go up to Lance and say, hey, Lance, we're hearing. <laughs> I don't think that, that would have uh, been a good idea, would it? <laughs> <laughs> you can only imagine what sort of yeah. reaction and response I would have got from him. He would have black banned me, very small group that we are, SBS. There's only about three or four of us at the time. And, and look, our, our audience uh, loved hearing Lance. So I had a very good relationship with him. It was very easy for his minders to say to Lance, look, go to Tom Alaris over there. Uh, Lance would always be the we'd always be the first one that Lance would go to because he knew that I wouldn't never dream of asking the doping question on anything related to drugs in sport or drugs that he might be associated with. So I had a good relationship with Lance. It was purely above board, above record. 
And look, besides all that, sure, he's a bully boy. Uh, sure, he was a bad boy. But he was a damn good bike rider as oh, yeah. well, Stephen. I truly believe that the reason why there are so many mammals out there, middle-aged men in Lycra, riding their bikes as weekend warriors right across Australia and across the English-speaking world, as a matter of fact, it's because of Lance. He's done a lot of bad things, but I've got to say, Lance, being the champion that he was uh, before we knew what he was really like, um, he brought us to the bicycle. That's the reason why I ride. He was my hero. He was my hero because he was a competitor. That aggressive nature of his, whenever he uh, took uh, to the Tour de France, he wore the yellow jersey. I can't remember how many days, but uh, well into the several dozen. He won uh, many, many stages. He crossed the line first on seven occasions uh, and before being stripped of those seven titles. He was my hero. Not so much these days uh, because of what's happened, but he's the reason why I ride, and I believe people in my generation are riding for the same reasons. Thank you, Lance. Yeah, it's like golf and Tiger Woods. I mean, we must never forget the backstory. I mean, take the drug use aside. This is a guy who recovered from cancer and came back and won the world's toughest bike race. Exactly right. Uh, um, he was uh, quite an immortal, really. And I, I've got to stress, Steve, I don't feel the same way about him now because uh, I guess he pulled the wool over the eyes of people like myself, Bill Liggett, the very uh, well-known uh, British broadcaster, Paul Sherwin. He's a late and great colleague. I mean, he pulled the wool over his eyes. We believed in Lance. We might have had our suspicions, but we tried to brush those suspicions aside and we thought, well, he is good. He's damn good. And he was good. But we know uh, now that he he needed assistance. But look, Steve, it was an era when I believe 99% of those riders in the peloton were taking performance-enhancing substances. He wasn't the only one. Uh, he wasn't uh, the Robertson Crusoe. Unfortunately, he was issued uh, with a life ban, and nobody else has uh, been issued with uh, such a long suspension. And I guess that's the reason why Lance these days, if you listen to his podcast, and he's a very intelligent man, let me tell you, he's clued up about a lot of things, uh, whether it's politics, current affairs, uh, just general knowledge. Uh, I listen to his podcast occasionally, but I get a little bit frustrated with Lance these days because he's still very bitter and twisted about uh, the life ban that was imposed to him in 2013, which is, which is really a shame. Given the doping, how impressive then does that make the Cadell Evans victory in the tour? Oh, <laughs> enormously. Because he's uh, clean uh, as could be. Well, yes, of course. He's never been uh, found to have taken performance-enhancing substances. He's, uh, he's clean as a whistle, I believe. And when he won the Tour in 2011 as the only Aussie uh, to this day, um, well, it was uh, a career-defining moment for him and one for myself as well. I mean, like I said before, I've been to Olympic Games. I've been to FIFA World Cup matches. But to see Cadell on the top step of the Tour de France on the Champs-Élysées in Paris uh, with Pina Arena singing the national anthem <laughs> next to him, uh, it's a moment that just brings uh, chills uh, down the spine to this day. This is uh, almost 10 years on now. It was a great moment. And it's great to know that he has received and uh, the accolades uh, that are warranted to somebody of that uh, ilk. Because uh, to win the Tour, really, it's a three-week event, Steve. It's not a game of footy that might be over in a couple of hours. It's not a game of cricket that might be over in five days. This is an endurance test for Tour de France like no other. So much luck is involved as well as skill and talent. 
uh, to reach the finish line. You've got to cover three and a half thousand kilometres over 21 days. You've got to battle the uh, the weather, the elements. Uh, it could be up to 40 degrees on one day. And if you're in the mountains, the temperature could plunge down to around uh, five or six degrees Celsius. And there could be snow. There could be landslides, as we saw in 2019. Uh, the, uh, the complexities of trying to complete this enormous endurance test is unbelievable. So for Cadell to have achieved that, to have completed that, to have conquered that, well, uh, my hat goes off to him, even nine years on, because it's an incredible accomplishment. You mentioned Phil Liggett. I mean, to us all in Australia, Richie Benno will always be, of course, the voice of cricket, Ray Warren, Rugby League, and probably Bruce McAvaney, <laughs> AFL. Tell us about Phil Liggett. He has such a distinctive voice. He never makes a mistake, and he seems so well-informed, and he brings boundless passion and energy to his coverage. I mean, the guy is a genius. Golden tonsils. Uh, his command of the English language is terrific, of course, but he makes a complex sport like cycling sound and look so easy. Um, when you listen to his voice, uh, you think it's a velvet sound, isn't it, Steve? Yep. It's just brilliant. Yep. And uh, apart from that, when you watch him uh, and listen to him when uh, the Tour de France is on, he's got such a good understanding of the country and uh, the culture that is the Tour de France. And don't forget, uh, Phil was, in his younger days, a uh, um, he wasn't a professional cyclist. He reached uh, amateur level uh, with distinction, and he had the choice of... Uh, pursuing a professional cycling career uh, when somebody handed him a position at a newspaper on Fleet Street back in the uh, late 60s or early 70s. In fact, there's a movie coming out called The Phil Liggett, The Voice of Cycling. It was um, shown for the very first time at the Adelaide Film Festival about two weeks ago, Steve. That'll be out in cinemas early next year. I've had a look at it, and it is fascinating. Phil Liggett, is uh, an interesting fellow for many reasons, none more than perhaps where he lives. He lives in South Africa, in a very remote part of the country, among the giraffes, the ele- elephants, and uh, the wildlife that's out there in South Africa. He lives there with his wife in a little hut that uh, is not unlike what you might have <laughs> might see on Gilligan's Island, uh, near a river. Um, and uh, he lives a very uh, uh, quiet but happy life with uh, Mrs. Liggett, and he, uh, both of them have chosen to live there when uh, the off-season is on. Uh, he comes to uh, Britain where he's, uh, he comes from, uh, I think, in the, in the wintertime. Uh, but look, uh, he shares his time between uh, Britain and uh, South Africa. And of course, uh, when the big races are on, he follows those as well. So uh, look out for Phil Liggett's The Voice of Cycling. It's a very interesting movie uh, in honour of a, a very, very interesting and successful man. And a guy that... Uh, I think most Australians have fallen in love with because of uh, his wonderful commentary. We we lost Paul Sherwin, his partner, of course, uh, to illness. Their partnership was a bit – his death was a bit like breaking up the Beatles. I mean, they just worked so well together, didn't they? It's shaken, Phil. It really has. And you'll see that in the uh, movie that's coming out early next year. Um, I'm really surprised that Phil continued his career after Paul passed away. Uh, when was it? December of uh, eighteen. So we're coming up to uh, his second anniversary now. Um, I really did think that Phil would give it away. I mean, it's like the left arm losing the right arm. You're right, the breakup of the Beatles. Um, but he's still there. He's 77, almost 78 years of age now with Phil. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much time he's got left in terms of uh, his career. 
he is slowing down. He's not doing as many events as he did in the past. His main employer these days is NBC when the tour comes around. We don't hear him, of course, in Australia anymore. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's quite complex for me to go through with you, with you about it now. But NBC gives him the big bucks, and yep. uh, they love his voice uh, to the North Americans. And uh, I think at his uh, age and uh, the stage of his career, he's pretty happy about that. Just finally, talking documentaries, I saw that documentary about the Green Edge cycling team set up by Jerry Ryan. How impressive is it that an Australian businessman like Jerry Ryan would finance an Australian-funded bike outfit that could compete in tours and, and win stages? To operate a professional cycling team on the world circuit, and the world circuit, apart from taking the Tour de France and the Tour of Italy and Spain and the Paris-Roubaix, is uh, a circuit that starts in January traditionally with the Tour Down Under, which incidentally won't be held uh, in 2021 because of COVID. But it continues from January right through to October. So it's a bit like the Formula One uh, World Series, I guess, uh, uh, Steve. So look, to fund a team like uh, Green Edge or Mitchelton Scott, as it's known now, you need about 30 million euros. What's that, about 50 million Australian dollars? Wow. It's not cheap. Now, Jerry Ryan, being uh, the passionate cycling guru that he, he has been for many, many years, he fell in love with uh, uh, cycling way back in the early 90s, I'm told, with the Herald Sun Tour in Victoria. But he got involved financially by funding this team in 2011. So he's bankrolled this team for the best part of 10 years, um, $50 million. And uh, even though we're going through a, a bit of a world global uh, financial crisis through COVID at the moment, um, I'm sure he's counting his pennies and wondering, how long can I continue doing this? It's not a cheap exercise. But his love for the sport has been endless. And uh, I've got to say, he has enjoyed a good return as well because he has seen uh, riders who represent the team enjoy the wearing of yellow jerseys and the colour of jerseys from other big races, stage victories. So uh, he's been blessed. Uh, He's a little hobby, um, has turned into a financial uh, windfall for him. But I often ask myself, how long can uh, someone like Jerry Ryan continue funding a team like uh, Mitchelton Scott or Green Edge because, uh, you know, uh, he's the only one. He's the white knight of Australian cycling is Jerry, apart from the fact that he's got so many other business interests. Uh, his main love is cycling, but I often ask myself, for how long can this continue? I hope it's for a long time, but something tells me it may not be the case. Mike, you're a major asset to the Australian media and to SBS. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Love it, Steve. Nice talking to you as always. Mike Tomalaris, the voice of cycling in Australia, joins other legendary sporting commentators for this edition of On the Record.